Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I wanted to talk about something that's been lost to history, yet still has this sort of mystical or mythical quality to it that people remember it fondly. It existed 50 years ago, roughly, and really only lived for a short period of time, yet people still remember it and think about it and has this sort of wistful sort of uh, understanding of it. And that is the Fort Wilderness Railroad. So if you'll indulge me, we'll take a little trip down memory lane, maybe a literal trip as we ride along the railroad. Sorry, bad pun. And we'll go along and we'll talk about what the railroad was. So the story goes that Walt Disney had always wanted to have some sort of an outdoor camping space. You have to remember that in like the 50s and 60s and into the early 70s, camping was a thing. People loved camping. People liked the outdoors. They wanted to get out and get to nature and do all these different things. And so camping was something that people took kind of seriously. People would go out and enjoy themselves. So when they were planning the park for Florida, a wilderness-type exhibit where you could go out and actually camp and engage in these fun summertime activities like canoeing and horseback riding and uh, you know, archery and uh, doing things outdoorsy where you could hike and bike and all these fun things, that was so not foreign at all and really uh, expected in a way. So Disney had this plan to create this outdoorsy space that would be like that. And even though he died before they started work on the resort, the, the people that ran Disney at that point decided that that was something they wanted to pursue. That outdoorsy type space, that made a lot of sense. It made, it made great sense to have sort of a campsite where you could camp and do all these outdoor activities. The challenge was, when they were planning the resort, they had planned for 750 acres to be the uh, campground. It's a pretty good size. So it's about a mile and a half from where you enter at the main entrance there near the Magic Kingdom to the other end where Pioneer Hall is. So that's a pretty fair distance. And it's about a mile from one edge to the other going across the other way. So it's a good size. And what they were trying to figure out was how do you efficiently get people from one end to the other? So what they came up with was an idea for a railroad. Railroads were always something that Walt Disney himself was passionate about. He had this interest in rails going back many decades. He had kind of gotten the bug and the itch along the way. I think Ward Kimball was the one who actually introduced Walt Disney to the whole idea of railroads and the concepts of model railroads and kind of stimulated that interest in some way. And Walt started working in a machine shop to actually work on some of the engines and so forth. So there was a certain fascination that went along with it that Walt really enjoyed. In fact, Walt had built the Carrollwood and Pacific Railroad, there at his Holmby Hills home, that went around through the backyard. And he was kind of fascinated by the whole idea of trains. So there was a connection here, and that's the reason that you have it at uh, Disneyland and around the Walt Disney World Resort in the Magic Kingdom. You have the trains there, because Walt had that fascination with it. So even after he died, 
the number of people that knew Walt personally and saw his passion for trains and love trains themselves realized that building a train around the Fort Wilderness campground was absolutely the right idea. It could get people from one end to the other. And as they were building up the idea for Pioneer Hall and having the hoop de doo musical review, and also opening River Country, it allowed for a lot of flexibility in terms of how, how people could get to those locations. You could get there via boat from the Contemporary, or you could drive over or take a bus over, and then take the train from the front entrance back to the back part, where you had uh, these areas situated on Bay Lake. So it was a really good idea. Now, when they built, started building the railroad, they started thinking about how do you build a railroad in what amounts to the wilderness? And yeah, I know it's Florida, but it's still wilderness and it's still swampy land and you still have some things that you need to consider. So what they thought about was, traditional railroads are 36 inches between the wheels, so it's a 36 inch rail. And they uh, traditionally would build something of that scale. But because of the fact it was in this kind of wooded area, it made more sense to create a smaller scale railroad. So they turned their attention to some of these plantation railroads that are out in like Hawaii, where uh, the Hawaiian terrain is kind of oriented differently and you need to be able to make some tighter turns and do some things. A 36 inch rail means that you can only make so much of a turn. Your turn radius is very great. 30 inches allows you to create tighter turns and be able to kind of work your way through a little more easily. So they decided to go with that 30 inch rail system that was similar to what they have in like the plantation uh, areas in the Hawaiian Islands. So they set about finding some trains and they actually purchased four trains, four locomotives from one of these uh, rail companies that was no longer using them. Had them shipped over to California and started restoring them. They also bought some cars so each one of these trains would pull about five cars. And they started restoring those as well and they were gonna put them into service. The other problem was how do you lay the track within that area? So Disney had never really done this before not on a commercial scale like this. When they built the railroads around both Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom, they actually thought through what they wanted to do. Because it goes in basically a circle, it was fairly straightforward and they hired the right engineers to come and grade the roadbed and make it right and do all the things they needed to do to get it laid out properly. When it came to building this 30-inch rail system that went through the, essentially the wilderness there, it was more like Walt's backyard in a sense, where the engineering on it wasn't quite the same. They didn't think through all of the details, the little details, that were gonna be required to have many passengers riding on this train. They're riding next to a creek, they're riding up through some uh, swampy areas, they ride through a couple of areas where there's more wooded places. So there were a lot of considerations that had to be made that weren't actually made properly. While the web designers were busy working on the trains, a few of them that knew a little bit more about trains and laying track came and worked with the uh, Buena Vista Construction Company. But the Buena Vista Construction Company had never done anything like this before. They'd never laid train tracks and they'd never laid rails and they'd never really graded the road for that. Certainly if they were doing it for a small scale thing where it was not used that much, there weren't many passengers on it, it might have been fine. But because they were dealing with a number of passengers and a lot of train traffic, the fact that they didn't have this understanding of how to build it became a liability. And I'll talk more about that as we get into this a little further. But the concept was they had started to lay this out and put together this train track that went through Fort Wilderness. So it started off near the entrance. There was a uh, rail barn that was up near the entrance uh, there off of where you come by the Magic Kingdom on that side. And it basically went in a loop. It went around to the uh, sort of the right 
of the uh, Fort Wilderness went up by Pioneer Hall and then came back down on the other side. So you had the sort of the street that went up the middle and this went around the outside parts. Now, as you can imagine, if you know Fort Wilderness at all, you know it's laid out in loops. That main drag, that main street that goes up through the middle branches off in different directions and there are loops that you can uh, go to where you actually camp. And some of these loops are farther away from the street. And when they started to build the railroad, some of them were kind of far away from the railroad as well. So if you can imagine it, think about the fact that you're, you're going along and you have rail stops along the way. Now, because of the orientation and the fact that some of these campsites aren't exactly close to the rail stops, you might have to walk as much as maybe half a mile to get to where you wanted to go. And you had to kind of curl your way through. It wasn't a straight line distance. You had to kind of walk along through the paths to get there. So it wasn't exactly the most efficient way to get to where you wanted to go. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't exactly the most efficient. So the Walt Disney Company took to putting these trains in service. Now they decided not to name the trains. In this case, they just called them Walt Disney World, Fort Wilderness Railroad, train number one, train number two, train number three, and train number four. And they would put them into service running around the tracks. And it was really a kind of a cool thing. It was an open air train, not unlike what you have in the Magic Kingdom, but it would go through the Fort Wilderness campground. Now, there was always challenges here. You're dealing with places where people are sleeping, people are walking, people are biking, people are doing act outdoor activities. So there is certainly some amount of uh, concern when it comes to actually uh, interacting with the train. There was also the concern about the fact that the trains were steam engines and needed to constantly have water put at them. So they put a couple of water stations along the way and they would put water in them regularly but the trains were smaller and couldn't necessarily handle enough water to make them run efficiently and effectively. So the trains had to stop more often. And, be and because the water stops weren't placed strategically around the track exactly, they had to stop at kind of strange intervals to fill back up. And they'd have to sit there for a little longer and fill up as much as they could. They kind of managed that to the largest degree they could, but it never really kind of worked in a way. Now in its heyday, the trains were running during the summertime, you'd have all four trains running, and so you'd wait maybe a maximum of 15 minutes for the train to come and get you and take you to somewhere. So you'd actually be able to hear it coming because you'd hear the locomotive. They'd run the train whistle to let you know it was on its way, and uh, you'd be able to take the train to the other side of the uh, Fort Wilderness Resort, which was kind of cool. It was really pretty neat, and as I say, it has this sort of mythical nature to it. People talk about it as being this great thing. It never really was a great thing. It was a really good thing. And because of the fact that it was, uh, had all these concerns from the roadbed to the concerns about safety to the concerns about how often it had to be watered, and of course the fact that the trains needed a fair amount of maintenance, just like they do in the, in the Magic Kingdom, both at Disneyland and at Walt Disney World, the trains need a lot of maintenance. They need a lot of TLC. So Disney was always working on the trains, and that was always a challenge to look at these trains and work on them. Not that it's a huge deal but it's just a lot, you have to make sure you're, you're planning and strategizing and making sure that you're keeping the trains maintained. So all of those things wound up after about, I think it's about five years that it was running, Disney decided to put it on hiatus while they looked at alternatives for what they could do. They looked at the possibility of doing some major restorations to the trains. They looked at changing the way they would put the water along the routes. They looked at actually changing the trains to other types of trains instead of having these, uh, I think they were four-fifths scale, if I'm not mistaken. Actually, I think they were full scale, but they were just, um, because they were squeezed, they looked smaller um, on that 30-inch rail. So they, uh, they looked at that. They looked at the possibility of um, going through and regrading the entire roadbed and doing it right. 
to make sure that the trains were more, more efficient. They looked at possibly putting another line in there and uh, making the route a little different. They looked at some other things that they could do. And none of them really made it sing. None of them really made it work. Uh, you know, it was just one of those things where after they looked at it several times, they realized there wasn't much they could do to fix this. It was going to cost a lot of money, and it wasn't going to be the most effective solution. It wasn't going to be elegant. They were looking at, at one point, they were looking at these electric trains that they had purchased out of Disneyland, and they brought them to Walt Disney World, and they put them on the Fort Wilderness Railroad, and they tried running them, and they couldn't pull the weight of the cars with passengers in them. Not, not fast enough. So they decided that that wasn't going to work. You know, today electric might work, but back then, probably not. You know, 1980, 81, it wasn't quite there yet. So it uh, didn't really go where they wanted to go. And unfortunately, they decided in about 1980 or so that that was the end. And they went ahead and closed the Fort Wilderness Railroad. They always said it was temporary. For years, they said it was temporary. And then uh, it stopped being temporary and became sort of permanent. But they left the tracks in place for the most part until the 1990s, until you know, 90 or 91 or so, right thereabouts, you could walk along and still see all the tracks in place. Now, if you really looked at the tracks, you realized that not only was the roadbed wrong, the tracks weren't laid correctly. You could see places where the tracks had kind of separated from the roadbed. They weren't attached to the railroad ties, the wooden ties that go across correctly. There were some places where the clamps didn't, uh, didn't meet quite right. So it was really laid incorrectly overall. And I would argue that that was probably the biggest reason that they didn't uh, continue to try to use, make, the, make use of the railroad. It just was too expensive to go back and regrade everything. It was going to be a huge construction project that was going to be a nuisance, and they had to go through the Fort Wilderness campgrounds to do it, which would detract from the sort of the natural beauty of the campgrounds for some period of time. Not that they wouldn't do it, but just that the price tag made it ineffective. It was easier to just go ahead and move some of your buses over there and have diesel buses running through, which also detracts from it in a very different way, but allows you to move people through more efficiently. And you can change the bus routes, add or subtract buses, and uh, get people to where they want to go. People can also drive their cars to the loop and go, there, go to where they want to go. And you see golf carts everywhere. People who are familiar with Fort Wilderness know that golf carts are the way to go. It's the easiest way to get around through the entirety of the um, Fort Wilderness campgrounds. So you can get from one end to the other. You can get up to uh, buy some food over at the trading post. You can go to the pool. You can go to the activities, the outdoor stuff. Otherwise, you're walking a lot and you're waiting for the buses and you have to figure out where the bus routes are. And I got to tell you, if you listen to my podcast way back, you know that I stayed at the Fort Wilderness campground one time with my boys and we um, didn't realize that I had a map in my pocket of the bus routes. So I didn't know where all the bus stations were relative to where I was. So it was kind of a challenge to figure out where to go sometimes and go, wait, I want to go to here and it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a 10 minute walk or 15 minute walk, which isn't a big deal. But then when I want to walk to here, it's another 15 minutes walk and, you know, whatever. And you have to figure out how to use your time and your space efficiently. And it just was an interesting challenge to have to go through that and figure out how it worked. Um, so just kind of funny, if you don't know about it and you don't know where you're going, it's sort of a, it's sort of an interesting activity. Now I can tell you that, um, my understanding is Dick Nunes, who was president of the Walt Disney World Resort at that point, he really wanted to bring the trains back. He had such a great interest in the trains and he, Walt was passionate about it and he wanted to, uh, actually bring them back and he did everything in his power to try and find a way to bring them back, but it just never happened. And of course, with the cost of building Epcot at that same time, remember 1980, 81, something like that, money was just not available 
to be able to put into a railroad. And of course, they tried getting a sponsor, but that didn't go anywhere either. There were a lot of different companies that were approached about building a railroad or sponsoring a railroad, but none of them agreed to do it. It was just too complicated. So at some point, uh, the Disney company decided it was time to go ahead and remove all the tracks. And that would have been in the early 90s, somewhere in there, they would have actually started removing the tracks and uh, taking them out. So they started to take the tracks out. Um, you can still see some evidence of pieces of track, the railroad ties in some places that are a little bit more remote. If you feel like, you know, kind of walking through the Fort Wilderness campground, you can find them. Remember, don't go into a restricted area and don't do anything unsafe, but you can get to some of them um, right off the beaten path. I mean, right there where you're walking and you would typically be uh, as a guest of the Fort Wilderness Resort, you can still see them. Um, so they were still there. Now the trains themselves, as for the trains, they decided at some point they were going to auction them off. Now the cars, mostly they just went ahead and scrapped. Um, the cars didn't have much value. They used two of them as the ticket boost to Pleasure Island when it first opened, which was kind of fun. They just repainted them, put some cast members in there to sell tickets, and they used the train cars to actually sell tickets, which I always kind of thought was fun. I like that. Um, it's one of those things that kind of uh, spoke to me in a way because I had that, I understood the history and thought that was really cool that they put them out there. Um, then at some point they replaced them with more permanent ticket booths, so they took them away. But the engines, they actually did decide to auction off. So the four of them were put up for auction, and um, after some intense negotiations and some different things that happened, when they sold the engines off and they auctioned them off, it turned out that all four purchasers for them were members of the Carrollwood Pacific Museum. That's the uh, railroad that remembers Walt Disney. It's the museum railroad that remembers Walt Disney out in California. And they have a barn out there and they have some of the original equipment that Walt had. Um, so they actually brought some of that there. Each of the members did something in, in, with it themselves, but they did display them for a, a period of time out in the barn. And that's actually kind of cool. Now, it turns out that when they negotiated to actually make the purchase, and it took a lot to actually go through the purchasing process because Disney was very specific that you cannot use these trains, you can't restore them to operating condition, you can't use them and put them on display. And that was in the contract that each of these people signed when they purchased it. Of course, all of them found a way to restore it to operating condition, but don't publicly display them, just have them working, you know, essentially in their backyards. So it's kind of a funny thing that happened there. There was a family that bought one of them, and there was a, they did a blog about what, actually, uh, what they actually went through to put it back into restored condition and make it run again. And it was kind of neat to follow through that in the early 2000s, you know, about 20 years or so ago, they, they had a blog that they were running on that. Of course, Disney did remove any logos or any other signage on the, uh, on the trains themselves so that they weren't recognizable as being Disney trains, though you knew if you saw them that they were. And then finally, at least one of the engines, and it might have been two, I'm not actually sure on this, were purchased from one of these other buyers by John Lasseter. You know, the person who was the creative officer at Pixar, he actually purchased the train and has it up at his uh, winery up in Sonoma, California. So I believe it's on display, or it was recently. So if you happen to go to his winery, you might be able to see it. And there's an interesting little hidden gem here. He was putting art on some of his wine bottles. Yeah, he created this family winery, and he was putting uh, art on some of the wine bottles. And one of the bottles he has a picture of his railroad train, one of these Fort Wilderness Railroad trains, on the label. So that's actually kind of a cool little nod to Disney history there that's sort of lost. So in terms of the overall length of the train, it was about 115 feet, uh, including the five cars. It could carry 90 passengers at any given time. 
the uh, maximum speed was about 15 miles an hour for these trains, but they kept it at about 10 miles an hour, so that it was a slow-moving train that went through. Uh, the configuration of the wheels, if you're interested, was a 242 configuration on the engines, and uh, they were easily maneuverable through these tracks that they had laid that kind of swerved and curved a little bit and made their way through the, uh, through the forest. For the early days of the train, it was actually a free ride. At some point, they charged about 50 cents a passenger. Then they increased that to about a buck a passenger. And it really was not a big deal. It was easy to spend the 50 cents and enjoy the ride. It was such a fun time, such a great ride. I remember riding on this a number of times. We stayed at Fort Wilderness, the uh, campgrounds, a couple of times. Um, I believe most of the time when we stayed there, we were staying in one of the cabins instead of actually camping on the ground. And then a couple of times when we'd stay over at, say, the golf resort, we'd head over to Fort Wilderness just to ride the train. It was that much fun. It was really worthwhile to, to do once in a while. I'm a train aficionado, too. Maybe I don't love them as much as Walt Disney did, but, but certainly there's a charm to them, and I enjoy riding them. So it was always fun to go over and ride the trains at the Fort Wilderness Railroad. It was just one of those neat things that was uh, really worth doing. And that's the history of the Fort Wilderness Railroad that was built in 1974 and ceased operations in 1979 or 80, depending on who you talk to. Um, there, was, there were periods of time when it wasn't running, but that's essentially uh, the way it worked. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart <laughs> of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new. One little spark lights up for you. For today's One Little Spark segment, I wanted to spend a minute or two and talk about critical race theory. I think the part of the problem with critical race theory is it struggles from having a name that people can't quite wrap their head around. And when you ask people, politicians, individuals, anyone else, what critical race theory is about, they kind of shake their head and they start to ramble a little bit because I don't think people really understand what critical race theory is about. Critical race theory, by the definition, is a body of legal scholarship and an academic movement of civil rights scholars and activists in the United States that seeks to critically examine U.S. law as it intersects with the issues of race in the U.S. and to challenge mainstream liberal approaches uh, to racial justice. Critical race theory examines social, cultural, and legal issues primarily as they relate to race and races in the United States. Now, critical race theory has been around since the 1970s when we first started talking about the topic of race relations as it relates to law and so forth. So I think it's an important thing to understand what it is rather than just saying, oh, it's bad because and use a talking point, or it's good because and use a talking point. I think it's it's important to take a little time and dig into it and understand what it is. And I'm going to put a link to an article in my show notes page from one of the education centers that talks about what critical race theory is and what's good and bad about it and kind of how it fits into society. So I would encourage a little light reading, you know, take a little time and read about it and uh, try to understand what it is. Um, you know, this is, uh, this is something that I think is relevant in today's world. You know, I think we, we miss out on um, what it is, uh, and we just kind of use words, and, you know, state legislatures say, oh, we can't teach it, and we always have to be careful with legislation that says you can't teach critical race theory because it encompasses so many things. Maybe then you can't teach about slavery or the history of the United States in terms of uh, abolitionists or anything else that may have happened. So you have to be careful because the law of un unintended consequences often happens that way when you do something and it becomes uh, something more than what you intended. So I'll, I'll put the uh, link in my show notes page, but I wanted to uh, leave you with one thing out of it. 
Um, as with uh, critical race theory in general, its popular representation in schools has been far less nuanced. A recent poll by the advocacy group Parents Defending Education claimed some schools were teaching that, quote, white people are inherently privileged while black and other people of color are inherently oppressed and victimized, end quote, and that, quote, achieving racial justice and equality between racial groups requires discriminating against people based on their whiteness, end quote, and, quote, the United States was founded on racism, end quote. Thus, much of the current debate appears to, not, to spring not from the academic texts, but fear among critics that students, especially white students, will be exposed to supposedly damaging or self-demoralizing ideas. So, you know, consider that when you think about what this is and what it means. That's all. And that is my one little spark segment for today. And uh, that is my podcast for today. And I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there... Please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company.